Hello. Right. Good morning. Uh, so today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. It's from chapter 9, verse 24, all the way to chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, on your pew Bibles, it's on page number 1167, 1167. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to be your sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated unless year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, as we dedicate this time to hearing your word and being encouraged, all the while also being uh, transformed by a word, we pray for Pastor Yuri as he comes to speak about your word, Lord. I just pray that you be with him and that all his research, all his preparation for this section, for this passage comes being, being, bearing fruit and that you speak through him to us and that we may also be encouraged and more, grow more faithful in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Atish. Jesus told people to expect a trumpet in Matthew 24, 31. Paul twice told people to expect a trumpet in 1 
Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But they were just repeating Isaiah because Isaiah told people to expect a trumpet. Chapter 27, verse 13, a trumpet sounding from east to west, gathering God's people to the horizon through the death of death that Pastor Mark read to us about at the beginning of the service. But even Isaiah, Isaiah too, was looking backwards as well as forwards to the first mention of a trumpet, a shofar, in the Bible. To Moses, to Mount Sinai, to the cloud and the fire and the smoke and the darkness as the Lord came down on the mountain. And to his trumpet, to the very loud blast of a heavenly shofar that grew more and more intense, as we heard about last week. The thing about trumpets is that they're loud. The thing about their loudness is that it's hard to ignore. The thing about trumpets being hard to ignore is that they can quickly send a signal to a lot of people. But the thing about the world is that it, too, is loud. The thing about its loudness is that it drowns out everything else. And the thing about its drowning out everything else is that we've mostly stopped listening. We're unable to hear even trumpets. We've largely put them out of our minds. And as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about that fact that people aren't listening even that they're hard of hearing. And I thought, what if amid the noise and the clamor of the modern world, it's spiritual deafness? What if the result of the bombardment we all experience every day, the global epidemic of actual deafness, what if when heaven's trumpet blew, the blast that Jesus and Paul and Isaiah told us about, what if no one could hear it? What if no one bothered to look up from what they were doing? To be honest, for a moment, I felt just a little despair. But then I remembered where that trumpet passage lies in Isaiah, as I said at the end of chapter 27. And I remembered, I remembered how much Isaiah talks about the world and its noise. I remembered, too, how much Isaiah talks everywhere about deafness. I remembered how that very real noise and that spiritual but no less real deafness has always been part and parcel of God's judgment on sin. And I remembered that God is more than capable of getting our attention, whether to show his mercy or reveal his judgment. Heaven's trumpet is no earthly trumpet. 
and the voice that it heralds is no earthly voice. Heaven's trumpet makes us aware that what we do really matters. Heaven's trumpet makes us alert to the reality of our eternal existence and that that existence will be either in heaven or in hell. Heaven's trumpet makes us alive in the power of the Spirit to the full assurance of hope. Now, strictly speaking, today's question didn't actually mention trumpets at all. In fact, today's question was more about something that looks like a troubling inconsistency in the text of Scripture. In the passage that Atish just read from Hebrews just a few minutes ago, in verse 27, if you have it in front of you, we find a very familiar phrase. It's the one that says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Or in the NIV, man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. But in the passages that mention heaven's trumpet, and especially in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul talks about Jesus' return, it's clear that those who are alive when Christ comes back will not die and will be with the Lord forever. So let's turn there now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's on page 1148 in your pew Bibles. We're going to read that passage together. It's just about 20 pages back from Hebrews 9. Page 1148 in your pew Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men, the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And here's the crux. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So clearly... Paul doesn't see any problem with the fact that those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will never die, despite the fact that Hebrews seems to be saying that all people must die. In fact, Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians about the exact opposite problem, that is, that some believers had died before Christ had returned. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the other place that Paul mentions heaven's trumpet, 
Paul again is dealing not with the people, with the problem of people living without ever dying, but with the assumption that death is permanent. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is refuting those who claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. But in both places, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, he says something that's almost unimaginable to us, that we who are now living, but fully expect to die, we who, as we might say, have been terminal from the moment of our birth, we will be changed. We will be changed, as Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, he goes on in one of these most memorable passages of Scripture, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. As wonderful as this change is to contemplate, it's also kind of hard for us. It's even harder, I think, for us to imagine this instant metamorphosis, a sudden transformation in the midst of life, than to hold even resurrection in our mind's eye, the picture of a person dying and then coming back to life with a new body, although even that is barely conceivable. But there's clearly no doubt in Paul's mind about either of these things. The clear expectation of Paul is that something will happen to us when heaven's trumpet is blown for the last time. The first time the Bible tells us God's shofar sounded, as we already heard, on the mountain at the giving of the law, heaven's trumpet ratified our death sentence. Heaven's trumpet ratified our death sentence. Though sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, Paul writes in Romans 5, and death reigned from Adam to Moses, as he says, yet he also maintains shortly thereafter that when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. That's in chapter 7 of Romans. Although he's careful to note that it was not because the law itself brought death, but because sin, by producing death through what is good, revealed sin's utter sinfulness. The law, heralded by the first trumpet, exposed sin for what it truly was. Not the technical foul that we like to imagine it to be. Some divine excuse to get us out of God's hair. But a breathtaking, extravagant evil. Revolting monstrous, putrid, universally nauseating, automatically, unambiguously provoking a warrant of death. But at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet, something will take place in us, a mechanism that we can't begin to dissect, where the very cells of our bodies will take on new properties. Death will be swallowed up Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, echoing that passage from Isaiah 25 that Mark read for us. This may indeed be how it looks to us when the time comes, that the Lord has swallowed death alive and whole. In Romans 8, he speaks of the whole creation longing, groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, aching for the moment of what he calls there the redemption of our bodies. 
And why does the creation groan? Because as he says, until that moment, it will remain in subjection to futility. In other words, when the people of God are physically transformed, the creation itself will know that release from its bondage to corruption is drawing near. Our being remade in the midst of life, death being swallowed up, is the proof and the signal that the mortal creation will itself put on immortality. And Paul makes this claim in Romans, despite the fact that earlier in the same book, as we just saw, he had affirmed again and again that because of Adam's sin, death spread to all people. Now, of course, a partial answer today to today's question is that if you take the phrase in context in Hebrews, it's clear that the reason the author says it is appointed for man to die once was not so much to set down a rigid law as to state the obvious, and that is everyone, everyone dies. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But we also know of two pretty clear, albeit mysterious, examples in Scripture of men who, who did not, in fact, die. Who are they? Elijah, right? And Enoch, right? So Enoch walked with God, and he was not, Genesis 5 says, for God took him. And Elijah, God took amid chariots of fire and horses of fire, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, 2 Kings tells us. But, but these examples flesh out the idea of a mortal being clothed with immortality, but th that is, they, they, they help us to be able to picture it a little bit better. But they also make the problem raised by today's question even worse, because they only give us more instances of the same paradox. Forget Hebrews for a minute and take it all the way back to Genesis where a rigid law, a sentence, a curse, is indeed laid down. The curse is this. Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. That's in Genesis 3. How do we reconcile these things? How can God fulfill his word, both the curse of death and the promise of life? How can we be given an imperishable body before we actually perish? This is important because it goes straight to the heart of the gospel. More than that, it threatens, if there is an inconsistency, to smear God's holy character. Because God cannot lie. God cannot simply ignore a punishment that he himself has meted out, no matter how long ago it was. He will not simply remove the limitations that he imposed on us, no matter how much we might want him to. Ecclesiastes 3 puts it this way. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. 
He's also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Humans have a gnawing desire to be able to figure out what God has done from beginning to end. But our lack is made especially sharp. Our quest is made evidently futile because God's decree was that our lives will be fleeting. In Psalm 90, Moses writes of the vanishing brevity of our lifespan while reminding us of the seriousness of the charges against us. All our days pass away under your wrath, he prays to God. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass. And we fly away. One of the most beautiful psalms there is. Genesis 6 even suggests that the flowering of our lives became so truncated in order that our evil hearts would not have the time to ripen all its evil fruit. So our limited lifespans first came about as a punishment, but they became even shorter in Genesis 6 as an act of severe mercy toward us so that we would not become quite as awful as we might otherwise be. I had here a few examples which I decided to cut <laughs> how awful we can be when we live long. I'm sure you appreciate that. The solution to this problem, the key to the scandalous beauty of God's mercy, to steal a phrase, the answer to the question of how the promise of life can swallow up the curse of death is found in our union with Christ by his spirit. On the cross, God's word of curse to the first Adam was satisfied once for all through the second Adam. Jesus took the punishment for our sin, past, present, and future, onto himself. We all know this. It's very familiar, but it's more than that wonderful truth. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, now unites us to him so completely that when the Father looks at us, he sees his Son's perfection, not our depravity. Paul makes much of this in Romans chapter 6, and it's no accident that he does it right after pointing out the universal nature of our sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. That sounds very theological, but to put it on very simple terms, right after Paul shows us that we all sin as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, right after he proves that Jesus' death is enough to bring us peace with God, Paul takes things much farther. He tells us that salvation is more than just being right with God and going to heaven, as wonderful and as comforting as that is, and as true as that is, he speaks of our union with Christ. And since this union with Christ is not something we hear nearly enough about, it's worth turning there now. This is page 1094, chapter 6, 
in your pew, uh, sorry, chapter 6 of Romans, page 1094 in your pew Bibles. Romans chapter 6, page 1094. I'll give you a chance to go there because we'll go through quite a bit of it. Romans 6, starting in verse 3, page 1094 in the Pew Bibles. Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into his death? And here Paul is talking about the demonstration of our union with Christ in the water of baptism. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And by living a new life, Paul's not just talking about our living our regular old life in some different kind of way. Because he goes on, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him. So that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin, slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, Paul, when he uses this phrase, the body of sin, he's not talking about a collection or a mass of sin, but he's talking about the fact that the body itself, our human flesh, is completely corrupted by sin, although it's not itself the cause of sin. It is the body of in other words, the body belonging to sin that must be done away with, that has been done away with through union with Christ. In verse 8, Paul goes on. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. For Paul and his hearers, these twin realities were so clear. That is, first, that Jesus had taken the punishment for our sin, and second, that our union with him by his Spirit was real and not dissolvable. Again, these twin realities were so clear that the real mystery was why people still did die. They didn't see any quandary in the possibility that anyone might not see death. As Paul had written years earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, as a result of God's breathing his breath into a molded lump of clay, the first man, Adam, became a living being. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He goes on 
1 Corinthians 15, 47, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We can and we should ponder and savor these great mysteries. In fact, we can't think on them often enough. To give us something simple to hold on to, 1 John 3, verse 2 puts the promise very plainly. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In fact, let's just take a second here and memorize that verse you can take with you today. Repeat after me. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, all together. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One more time. When he appears, and like you mean it, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. Amen. At any moment, at any moment, heaven's trumpet could sound. Think about that for a second. At any moment, Jesus could return. At any moment, we could be like him, seeing him as he is, with a face like the sun shining in its brilliance, with feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, with eyes like blazing fire, with a voice like the sound of rushing waters. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And that's how Revelation 1 describes him as he is now. At any moment, we could be given a spiritual body, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. At any moment, we could be caught up together with the saints who have come to life to meet Jesus in the air, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4. At any moment, we could be able to walk through walls like Jesus. At any moment, we could have the ability to vanish and appear like Jesus did in his resurrected body. A body that yet still bears the nail prints in his hands. Those nail prints, by the way, are still there because his suffering was his glory. But more thrilling than all these physical things is that at any moment, we could be like him in the way that really matters. Not just possessing a new body that won't die and can do all kinds of cool stuff. We will no longer be prone to that which causes death. No longer prone to sin. We will be completely and utterly can you imagine that? That's probably the hardest thing for me to imagine, to be completely and utterly free. 
This is what salvation means. The freedom to live like Jesus does entirely to God. This is what salvation means. The freedom to live entirely to God. And that's the salvation that Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 is talking about. Let's read it again. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. I'll start in verse 24, and I'll be reading from the ESV now. And I'm, and I'm going to skip a bit, because I'm going to leave out all but the most important points. These Hebrews can get a little circuitous, uh, a little uh, circuitous in its, in its logic, but I'm going to read the most important points here to, to kind of bind them together. Verse 24 of... Hebrews 9, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. Why? To appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's why Christ entered into the holy place. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of of the ages. Now I'm going to interrupt here for a second because a better translation of the word end in the phrase the end of the ages, a better translation would be the consummation, the climax of the ages. The Greek word here, Neil will appreciate, <laughs> the Greek word here is not just the usual word for end or goal, which we have in a lot of English words. The Greek word is telos, T-E-L-O-S. That's not the word that's used here in Hebrew. It is syntelos, or syntelos, S-Y-N-T-E-L-O-S, the coming together of goals. So it literally means coming together of every possible trajectory. The drawing together of every thread in history. Incidentally, the only other people in the New Testament who use this term, syntelos, are Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. When first Jesus describes the end or the consummation, the syntelos of the age, as the final harvest, chapter 13. And then, and then the disciples ask him to expand on this later on, much later on, and he launches into his extended talk near the end of the Gospel of Matthew about the consummation or the end, the syntelos of the age, which is where he describes himself coming on the clouds of heaven, sending out his angels with a loud trumpet call to gather his elect from the four winds, chapter 24. The truth that this suggests, one which I would not even with reverent caution and sober awe, venture to say aloud if it were not supported by the rest of Scripture, since it lies beyond our ability to comprehend, being too high for us to fathom, is that the appearing of Jesus, whether his first coming or his return, is a syntelos, like a four-dimensional vanishing point an infinite coordinate where space and time meet and fuse together. Now, if that doesn't bend your mind, uh, I'll let you sit with that for a little while. 
We'll come back to it in a minute. But let's go back to Hebrews 9, if you have your Bibles in front of you. So back to, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. I'm in verse 26. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end or consummation of the ages. Why? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, it is appointed for man to die once simply means, as I said earlier, to state the obvious. Everyone dies. Now, just as it is appointed for man to die once, so Christ was offered once. As it is appointed for man to die once, so Christ was offered once. Hebrews is setting up a contrast here between us and Jesus, but to do it, the author first points out the common ground, that is, what we share with Jesus. Just as we die once, so also Jesus died once. We are mortal, so is he. But the once is important. The text has just pointed out that he did not die repeatedly. Death is a singular event, a significant event, the universal fact of human life that changes everything. That is, everyone expects to die, and Jesus died, but we all expect to die, and he died only once. But the death that we die, as sobering and as serious and as painful as it is, is actually just a provisional punishment from God in his mercy. As we saw earlier, our death that we all expect is a provisional punishment from God in his mercy to sober us up in order to direct our attention to something more important, to impending judgment, permanent judgment, the sorting of our souls for eternity, the distinct possibility, in fact, the likelihood of what Revelation calls the second death. Notice, however, that Jesus' death in Hebrews, though it was, though it was a death, is not called a death here in Hebrews. It's called an offering, a sacrifice. The closest it gets to the word death is the word suffering. Christ appeared and was offered once to bear the sins of many. But whereas humans die once and then comes judgment, the implication being that we all deserve the second death, Jesus is offered once to bear the sins of many and will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, he already did that, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That should confuse you a little bit. Because usually we think of dealing with sin as being the same as being saved, right? Jesus came once to deal with sin, but the second time he's not going to deal with sin, he's going to save us. 
Hebrews is making a contrast between dealing with sin and saving those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, although there is a good deal of overlap, dealing with sin, what we call justification, is not identical with salvation. It's one part of salvation. Indeed, the book of Hebrews speaks of salvation in much more comprehensive terms than just having your sins taken away so that you can go to heaven. At the end of chapter 1 of Hebrews, salvation is spoken of as an inheritance that involves, among other things, being served by ministering spirits, that is, angels. Do we think of that as salvation? In chapter 2, salvation is being sanctified, made holy. It's suffering. It is adoption into God's family. It is Jesus destroying the devil. It is the freedom from slavery and the freedom to serve. That's what it is in chapter 2 of Hebrews. In chapter 5, salvation is obedience. In chapter 6, salvation is being sure of better things, the full assurance of hope. In chapter 7, it is being saved to the uttermost. That is, being drawn near to God. Salvation is the Christ who lives to make intercession for us every minute of every day. That is salvation. And when he comes for a second time, he will save to the uttermost in a new way that we can't possibly conceive of yet those who are waiting eagerly for him. The thing about trumpets is that they're loud. The thing about trumpets is that they're hard to ignore. The thing about trumpets is that they can immediately send a signal, a signal that can fulfill the most noble longing, even as it seals our greatest dread. A signal once and for all. Isaiah, reflecting back on Sinai and forward to Zion, told people to expect a trumpet. Paul twice told people to expect a trumpet. Jesus told people to expect a trumpet. Heaven's trumpet is something which we can either look forward to or try to just put out of our mind since we know that it intones our doom. Looking forward to heaven's trumpet makes us aware that everything we do has significance. Putting it out of our mind pulls the wool over our eyes and robs everything we do of any meaning. Looking forward to heaven's trumpet makes us alert to our salvation, to an existence in eternity that has already begun, to a heaven that we've already started to experience, to the knowledge that our days no longer pass away under God's wrath, but under God's blessing. But putting heaven's trumpet out of our mind Ignoring it 
wishing that it would go away or just laughing it off stupefies us. It leads us to pay attention to the most bewitching of fairy tales. That nothing really matters. Or that we are all that matters. This self-soothing lullaby we coo all the way until we die once. And after that comes judgment. Looking forward to heaven's trumpet makes us alive in the power of the Spirit to the full assurance of hope, to the dance at the vanishing point of four dimensions, to the place where signals cease, where faith becomes sight, where longing becomes beauty, where death becomes life. That is where our spiritual union with Christ finally overtakes and swallows up our deadly body of sin once for all, for all who will be like him, who will see him as he is. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, do we long to hear your trumpet blast, or do we dread it? Lord, if we're sitting here and we're, we're, we're worried about it, we're dreading it, if it's something that we're not looking forward to, something that we're not sure about, Lord, convict us, change our plans, make us talk to somebody about it. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to know that that is a diagnosis, that is a symptom of our spiritual state, that we are living in a body of death. A body that will not be swallowed up by life, but a body that will simply decay, but not just molder in the ground. Isaiah Isaiah's wonderful vision, Isaiah's most inspiring vision, one of the longest books in the Bible, ends as they go out and look on those who have died outside of Christ and not, they're not just resting peacefully, Lord. Their worm does not die, and the fire never ends. So, Lord, if we dread your trumpet, cause us to talk to somebody to help us to know how to wait expectantly for it in joy, how to show us what it means to live, to truly be saved. First, yes, to have our sins wiped away, but also to know what it means to have you intercede for us, to live to make intercession for us. Help us to know what it means to dance at that infinite coordinate where space and time meet, where length and height and breadth and depth and seconds and minutes and hours converge.
a truth that we can't even begin to conceive of other than in words. And yet your, your, your word does seem to suggest that. Oh God, give us the joy of your spirit, the joy that unites us to Christ, the joy that results as we are united to Christ, that we feel his life inside of us that will eventually overtake us and overshadow and swallow up this body of death. Oh God, give us that assurance. Oh God, give us that hope, that full assurance of hope that Hebrews talks about. We ask this in your strong and mighty name, the, the name of the life-giving Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Amen. As a benediction this morning, I'd like to offer the end of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your sting oh death where is your victory the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace this morning.